This podcast contains real talk about the mayhem of motherhood, along with a weekly medical mystery. Because all of these topics can be pretty graphic, and because we use explicit language, listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Motherhood, Mayhem, and Medical Mysteries podcast. On this show, we are not attempting to solve the major medical mysteries of the world or tell you how to raise your kids. We are definitely not doctors or scientists of any kind. We are just two moms here to provide you with support, resources, and maybe a few laughs along the way. We do a lot of research and will definitely share the things we learn, but please talk to a professional if you have specific concerns about your experiences. Here's Melanie. She was worried that her cat was temporarily lost, but he made his way back home and we're so happy. We are. And here's Miranda, who I recently learned loves Bob Seger. I do love Bob Seger. And actually, we're going to be talking about a lot of night moves tonight when it comes to (laughs) when it comes to babies. So hang tight. Okay. Well, everybody, if you are new here, this is our 20th episode of the Motherhood Mayhem and Medical Mysteries podcast. We are so stoked. And we really just want to take a little break here before we get into our episode today and remind you if you're new with us, maybe you're like, what are these two crazy ladies talking about? We are a space for all moms, for everybody. We want to be as inclusive as possible on this podcast. We recognize that parenting is just one big experiment, and we are all trying to figure it out. That being said, it truly does take a village, and we just want to share ideas and tips from all of the intersections of parenting, women's, and children's health, and present you with some content that you can glean and hopefully gain some value and insight from. Our format is a casual discussion of a parenting topic and a topic in women and children's health. I'll share some information about raising kids, and then Mel will demystify a medical topic. And those are always fun because she provides a clearer picture of issues that we often hear a lot about, but we may not fully understand. And you guessed it, our show is always sprinkled with plenty of mayhem. Most of the time, those are just unplanned conversations about the crazy things happening in our lives. And believe me, we have a lot of crazy things going on. We always like to polish our episodes off with a spotlight of either a nonprofit organization or a group that is doing some really cool work in the space that we present about. This is like a call to action or a way for you to get involved or to learn more. These issues impact us all, and it can be really helpful to learn about other resources that are out there and how we can all be supportive. I also want you all to have fun while we're here. I mean, it's a podcast, so you're most likely like driving to an appointment or going to pick up dinner or you're washing the dishes or doing the laundry. So, you know, we want you to have a few laughs while you're while you're there and uh, enjoy your time. And we appreciate everybody for listening. If you have listened to all of the 19 episodes that precede this one, God bless you. And tell your friends because we're morons and there's content there that they might enjoy. We're here for support. We're here to educate, but we're also here to have fun. So I'm glad you brought up Bob Seger because we're going to be talking about some night moves on this show tonight. Oh, parenting involves so many night moves. Parenting doesn't happen unless there's some night moves. Number one. Oh, true. True. (laughs) Oh, man. But tonight we're here to talk about babies, little bitty babies. And tonight's episode was actually a request on our Facebook. So thank you to our Mayhem Mama who recommended tonight's episode all about infant sleeping and then some infant health issues that Melanie is going to be getting into later on in the episode. But we're going to kick things off with a parenting topic around getting your baby to sleep. So Melanie, before we dive into all of that, I wanted to ask you, 
because I know you've got some funny sleep stories when it comes to dealing with Jonah when he was a wee lad. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like for you when you were (laughs) in those early months trying to sleep through the night with a small baby? Oh, my goodness. I was not prepared. And nobody's prepared. Well, maybe second, third, fourth time parents, they're prepared. But I was brand new and I was a little older than most new parents and we were tired (laughs) and we had this really, really cute little baby that you couldn't pick him up and move him from one spot to another, like once he was asleep. But like, okay. Like you always see or you envision in your mind that these people like lay the baby down uh, and like they're holding him and he falls asleep <laughs> and then they lay him in the bassinet or on the, in the crib and he stays asleep. Not this one. Not this one. You move mm. him at all. He's awake and, and he's not going back to sleep. He's not doing it. Oh, man. And I know that this is definitely never recommended and i'm sure you'll get to this in a minute but you know it desperate times man oh desperate we've all been there what we realized is that if he was on a pillow like on his back but on a pillow Mm -hmm. and he fell asleep Mm -hmm. you could scoop up the pillow and move the pillow oh yeah (laughs) and him like like you're carrying him around like he's a a crown jewel like (laughs) right like he's the he's the queen he's the crown (laughs) he's the crown or like or like a like a serving tray kind of serving tray (laughs) Um, was this like a like a regular like standard size pillow or like did it have to be a particular throw pillow was there a preferred pillow involved well well I mean, I, I I vaguely remember being worried about I didn't want it to be too squishy of a pillow. So sure, I think I right. used like a uh, also I know definitely not recommended, but like kind of a slightly firmer feather pillow, like a like a flatter, oh. a flatter, you know, a flatter not a feather. fluffy one, but like a flatter, <laughs> a flatter yeah. feather, a flatter feather. Yeah. So here was my move. Uh, I would I would lay him like beside me on his pillow <laughs> on the couch <laughs> after I fed him and he would go to sleep and then I would scoop him and the pillow up and I would take them upstairs and put it in the bassinet next to my side of the bed. So he went into the bassinet on it, the on pillow. the on, on like the pillow, pillow was under yeah. him in the bassinet mm-hmm. okay okay firmly wow. i know totally not recommended yeah however it started it like kind of became a joke like my mom started calling him pillow boy and you know how she loves to sew <laughs> so yeah, yeah, he yeah. had like dozens of pillow cases oh, there was like every kind that. of every kind of pillow case oh my gosh that is hilarious you know what though it got us through and it made it so that you could actually get a few hours of sleep. Well, and that's the thing. You got to do what you got to do. And we were like, oh, yeah, we're going to, you know, we're not going to co-sleep because that's dangerous. So we got, um, and my mom actually got it for us, one of those really, really nice halo swivel bassinets. Yeah, I knew oh, about my it. gosh. It's like a $300. You were actually the one that recommended that. My doula recommended it, but we were too cheap. And somebody gave me a second hand, like old, older bassinet. And we just use that. And it worked. We We put it on our registry and my mom got it for us. It was like, amazing as a gift and we used it don't get me wrong we used it we used it for uh, the first night waking but after the first night waking there was always an inevitable second night waking and that went on until the time that fisher was like over a year old and for the second night waking whoever lost the the rock paper scissors game that day would have to take fisher into the other room and go you know do a feeding and 
put him down there so that the other one could get some sleep. So right. I would always handle the first feeding and then and put him back in the bassinet. But then the second time, which was like the 3 or 4 a.m. guy, yeah. I my, my husband handled that one a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Bradley, for doing that. But on the nights that I did this, <laughs> this is definitely not recommended. I would take him into our guest bedroom where we had like a futon. And I remember, oh my gosh, I watched the entire entirety of Friends in the months that I was breastfeeding yeah. Fisher. And, and it was my middle of the night show. And I would be like watching Friends at 4 a.m., like <laughs> nursing Fisher on the futon in our guest room. And then when I was all done and he was ready to go back to sleep, we had like this little storage bin from Target, like literally like the kind of bin that you like put toys or whatever. In, and we like had a stuffed box, <laughs> basically. A box. It's, a, it's a box. It was a box. It was nice. It was. Wicker. It was like it a was fancy. Cute. It was a fancy box, <laughs> and it was full of like blankets. Also, yeah. not recommended. Okay, okay, but you know <laughs> but what? That's where he would go. That's where he would go, and he was right beside me on the futon. And I would just kind of, you know, it's four a.m. Oh my gosh, it's four a.m. Yeah. And who knows what's going on with Ross and Rachel at this point in the series? Ugh, they were probably on a break. And I would put I would put Fisher in the little box. You would put him in a box. In box. So your your baby was in a box and mine was on a pillow. And guess what? Here we both are. And guess what? We slept, okay? And that's what really counts is we slept. Oh my gosh. Now what about like cradle cap, diaper rash, like other baby baby? stories like what else was going on with Jonah in those early infant days that you remember oh dear lord I mean I have to honestly tell you that it was all such a blur I mean the very initial thing I remember is I had so much pain you know down there oh yeah that I, well. I I was not mentally prepared for that so mm -hmm. then it was like I mean, this is, we're talking early, early days, but uh, that was rough. I was not ready for that. He actually didn't get cradle cap till later, which I'll, I'll get into all of that. But that wasn't really a thing that I knew about when he was tiny. But I know it happens. Diaper rash. I don't know. Do you remember things like this? The only thing that really comes to my mind with diapers was, and you'll remember this, and I don't know why this was such a sticking point for me, but I was <sighs> insistent that I wanted to cloth diaper. Oh, I remember. And yeah, and I was going to save the environment and not pollute the world with diapers. And so I had gotten some some cloth diapers and they were nice. They were nice. And truthfully, no, you know, they were very nice. Actually, I, re I remember those. Yeah. And I won't, you know, I won't knock it. Like, I, I think I would still probably do it again. I don't think I would do it exclusively because I was like pretty staunch about it. <laughs> I do remember that. I do remember trying very hard not to roll my eyes and be like, come on, let's be realistic here. You have to go back to work. I just had my <laughs> little mind made up that this was... <laughs> <laughs> the right thing to do for the environment. And uh -huh. it was funny because I had a clothesline in the backyard with like all the diapers, like clothes pinned, uh -huh. you know, on the line and everything. And it wasn't that bad. Like when I was on maternity leave and I was home, honestly, it was good for me because it was like something I could do and something I could accomplish. And like if I washed a load of diapers that day, I felt like I checked something off my list and that made me feel good because it is, it's such a blur. And and you feel like you are just existing and you don't know if it's day, you don't know if it's night, you don't know what's going on. But but I would, for you listeners out there, my child is a couple years older than Miranda's. So I was watching her be very staunch in all of her feelings about how things were going to happen. Um, I'm just now learning that her child was put in a box. I'm sure she wasn't going <laughs> to share that with me at the time. I mean, it was a very nice storage bin from Target. It wasn't like a ratty cardboard box. It but but like I nice. remember 
already having been uh, done the maternity leave and been back at work and being like, Miranda, this cloth diaper shit is not going to last. <laughs> like, we are working moms. Like, I feel like it very much has its place and I think it's great. But I don't think that it's feasible for families where both parents work full time, which is the yeah. families that we're we're both in. Yeah. I'll tell you, they're not ideal when your baby gets bigger and your baby has bigger messes either. So and they're that. a little leaky sometimes. Yeah, yeah, they're not the they're not the cinchiest kind of kind of things. So that elastic wears out, and it wears out quick. I highly recommend Up and Up by Target. Okay, Miranda. So we've already established that likely our children are not supposed to sleep on pillows or in boxes. <laughs> Please tell us where these little itty babies are supposed to sleep or or how we're supposed to get them to sleep. Right, right. I I really wish I could tell you, Melanie. I wish I could tell you because I'm I did some research here and literally the jury is out. The jury's out on what to do. So our answer is what it usually is, and that's find something that works for you for as long as it possibly can and just fucking run with it as far as you can because it's not gonna last long. There's a lot to to touch on when it comes to how do we get our babies to sleep? You can look at sleep schedules. You can look at sleep regression. You can look at, is my child sleeping through the night? What does night waking look like? What does co-sleeping look like? What does sleep training look like? The list goes on and it's very frustrating to try to dial this in. So I've put together what I think is a pretty helpful paradigm and we're going to explore a spectrum of some different attitudes around getting your baby to sleep. And we're going to explore or the pros and cons of all of these things. And I found some surprising things here. I really did. So hopefully um, our listeners will gain some insights. So I think, imagine a spectrum. At one end is like the woo-woo hippie mom running around without a bra, and she's just living her best life with her dreadlocks and her tattoos. I I like her. She's cool, she's, right? She sounds cool. So so she's like, yeah, like my baby doesn't really have a schedule, and we don't really have structure, and I don't really believe in you know frameworks and all these things. Just let my baby do what they want to do, and that's awesome. And maybe probably she's also a co-sleeper, which is is also great. So that's one side. The okay. other side of the spectrum is, you know, a more rigid mom and and you know, maybe she's probably very professional in her career and her house is very clean and organized and she has like multiple planners for like all of the activities that she has going on. And maybe she's like really involved in her community and like volunteers a lot because she makes time to do all of these really important things that she values. And she's she's really cool too and we we also love her. I mean, I want to understand her more, but I'm not sure if we would be friends because she seems a little too organized. I mean, I I feel like I can kind of get on board with her organization. And she's more like, you know, we're going to be strict with our schedule. We're going to, you know, my baby's going to sleep independently. We're going to be on this schedule and it's and it's going to be good and it's going to serve our family okay. well. We're okay. into it. We're here for okay. all of it. So really what we have here is an intersection of sleep schedule. Okay. So okay. am I going to be strict with my kids' sleep schedule and sleep training them? Um, or am I going to be like more loose and fast and just kind of let them do what they want? And then the other side there too is like, am I going to be a stickler for my child sleeping independently? Or am I going to be, you know, more like, again, my child can just fall asleep in my arms in my bed and like, I don't care. Again, we're not really always boxing in there. We're going to try different things. And right. the last thing you should ever do ever as a parent is say, I'm never going to do that because those words are going to taste good when you eat them. <laughs> just in life in general, word of advice, just don't ever say those words. Never say never, especially when you are sleep deprived. Exactly. So a couple of facts, and then we're going to dive into like some pros and cons of all these different approaches. Number one, babies need about nine to 12 hours of sleep per day. And that wow. is in addition 
to their regular naps. They sure don't act like it. <laughs> I wish I wish they would slow down a little bit when they're in school, but oh well, that's what we get. So this is another interesting thing to keep in mind. It takes babies between three to six months to develop their internal body clock. Hold on, what did how, how long did you say? Three to six months to develop oh, their circadian oh, wow. rhythm. Mm -hmm. That's why those first three months are just such a blur. Like, forget trying to do anything in the first three months of having a baby. Like, wow. maybe when they're four months, you can start trying some things. But before that, just survive as best you can. One of my friends from college, she just had twins. And she's Ooh. posting a lot about them on Facebook. And I'm just like, I do not know how you are still upright. I don't know how you're upright. <laughs> because Man, those boys are eating and crying around the clock. Super cute boys. All right. So let's look at routines and schedules. And again, there's kind of two ways to do that. You can either be really, really pro schedule or really, really no schedule. Pros and cons to both. Okay. So some things to think about here. This also goes in line with sleep training, which there's several methods of sleep training that I didn't know about. So I just want to quickly highlight those. Number one is cry it out. We know cry it out is literally just like put that baby down and let them cry until they stop, no matter how long it takes. Did you, I, I recall you trying that maybe later on? Well, actually what I tried is the second method, which is Ferber. And oh, this, boy. Is, this is the gradually increasing the amount of time that you let them cry. So maybe you let them cry five minutes the first night and then you go in to soothe them. And then maybe the second night you build it up to 10 minutes before you go in and soothe them. So there's reactive soothing in gradually increased steps. Okay. Those yeah. both sound really hard to me because five minutes seems like an eternity when there is a crying baby. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. And and you have that like emotional guilt going on. Like, oh my gosh, I should go help them. No, I shouldn't. Yes, I should. No, I shouldn't. So um, like the Ferber method, there's another method called check and console. So whereas Ferber is like reactive, I'm only going to go in there when they're crying. Check and console is proactive. So you come in the first night every minute and just say, hey, I love you. Sweet dreams. And then you leave. Oh, that seems like that could lead to reactions. <laughs> yeah. And then you, you spread that out. So like the first night is every minute then second night is maybe five minutes and you just build up so you're proactively coming in whether they're crying or not just to let them know they're there you're there and you love them and whatever okay i also tried this other method which is called the fading method some people call it the chair method i did this when uh, fisher was a little older and was sleeping in his toddler bed and this is where you physically move a little bit further away from them every night. So the first night you're right up against them until they fall asleep. And then, you know, you go back three feet from that space and then three feet until you're like out the door. So another way to kind of gradually introduce them to that. And then one that's kind of, I guess, you know, you can't really say any of these are new. I think they're just kind of recycled. The gentle or no tears sleep training method. And this is really where you emphasize a really, really strong sleep routine. So it's like a jam-packed routine. And you're just super, super consistent with that routine. You put your baby down when they're tired. If they cry, you pick them back up and you rock them um, until they get really, really tired again. And then you lay them down. And then if they wake up, you pick them back up and you rock them until they're tired. And it's just like, whoa, that sounds like a lot. And I, I mean, I think I probably started with that method. And then fast forward three hours, we're still doing this thing and I just I stopped <laughs> it was awful I am not a trained infant sleep professional but I feel like maybe some other people might want to try the pillow method <laughs> I like your pillow method I liked my box method okay you just lay them in the box like you said friends. you gotta figure out what works for you <laughs> 
that's the truth. That's the end of the story is to just do that. So those are all different sleep training methods. And the thing about sleep training is it really didn't come on this scene until like the 1950s, 1960s, when the behaviorist movement was actually really big in psychology. Oh, that's interesting. That makes sense, though. Right? I never thought about that because I always wondered where that came from. But it's kind of, I mean, think Pavlov's dogs, right? Right. You positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, all the way to extinction of a behavior, um, which is like the cried out method. So anyway, um, the behaviorism movement of the 50s and 60s really is where people began adopting and even becoming proponents of sleep training. It wasn't even really a thing until then. Um, And then you saw all this literature kind of explode about it. So that's where its roots come from. And obviously, there's lots of pros to having a rigid schedule from sleep training. Uh, It leads to more predictability in your life and your family's life. Having that nice, predictable routine, you know, okay, well, we've got to go home. We've got to do this. This is when we can get things done. And having that level of predictability can provide a lot of psychological safety to the family. Just like knowing and having an expectation of this is what time we're going to be home. This is when we're going to do this. It just makes life a little bit easier when you have that. And that's the thing. Again, you know, if that's the mom with three planners and that's you and that works, like do it. Go for it. We're here for it. It's again, it's all a big experiment and you've got to do what works. Cons to this is it does require that really strict level of consistency, which makes it hard to like live your life outside of those scheduled sleep hours. I mean, I guess for some people, it doesn't make it that hard. Like if they're already that way, like if you're already a very rigid person that has your day very scheduled, like this is very Mm -hmm. obviously going to be the choice for you. Mm -hmm. But if you're more like me that like I do have a reputation of being like planned, but I'm not so like scheduled, I guess you got to do what works. You got to do what works. So another con here is it can cause your baby to have a lot more, like they require a lot more attention to fall asleep. You know, think about the heavy routine that you have to do. There's all these things you have to do. There's this rigorous sleep training thing. And that can cause a lot of anxiety. And uh, one study that I looked into actually found that heightened sleep anxiety, basically when you have anxiety about your sleep routine or your baby's sleep routine, routine, this focus on sleep actually makes your sleep worse. You're not getting oh, quality sleep because you're bet. so hyper-focused on, oh my gosh, you know, blah, 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 the schedule. Interesting, right? Yeah. And there's science and data to back that up. Um, another thing that's interesting is it can cause you to not pick up on your baby's cues organically, and you may miss opportunities for your baby to rest other times throughout the day. So if you're being so rigid where you're like, okay, well, my child can't fall asleep until 8 p.m., but your child has shown you like three times already that they're actually like ready for a nap, you're missing out on that organic signal. And then your baby's not getting the quality sleep that their body really needs because you're so focused on the schedule. Yeah, that makes sense. So then, of course, the other side of that is the no schedule, the woo-woo mom out there. Um, We see you, woo-woo mom. She enjoys a lot of flexibility because she can kind of just, you know, she can chill. She can do whatever. She's not tied to like a, a schedule or this rigid structure. It can give her more freedom when it comes to traveling and dealing with like disruptions. You know, if she's out and about, you know, you just you just deal and the baby just sleeps when they're tired and you just keep on going. And a lot of times the baby actually needs less attention to fall asleep because they're just going to fall asleep when they're tired. They're going to. This yeah. this is the baby that's crashing on a pillow on the couch, perhaps. Yeah. You know, or I remember we took Fisher to Disney World when he was really, really little. Oh, my gosh. That's a that's a podcast episode. And I'll get to say all over again how I was like, why are you doing that? Oh, geez. It was it was a nightmare in a lot of ways. But one of the things was like he was pretty good on a sleep schedule before we went to Disney and we went uh-huh. to Disney and it threw everything off. But like it blew my mind because he was so tired and so stimulated that he was like falling asleep, you know, in his high chair at the restaurant like, right. <laughs> like into his food. He was so tired. So anyway, the, he needed a lot less attention to fall asleep. All of that to say. Another thing that's really could be a pro of having no schedule is your baby's brain is so 
it's growing so rapidly. You know, neuroplasticity is so high those first few months of life. And it could be a really risky time to attempt to sleep train at any point. So kind of letting them lead their own signals may actually be healthier for their brains. Um, Not a lot of hard science on that, but just kind of understanding how the brain works and neuroplasticity in general, letting the brain kind of do what it needs to do and letting your baby just kind of go with the flow may actually contribute to that. Of course, there's some cons to not having a schedule like less predictability. And then another really important one is having difficulty with transitions like daycare and kindergarten. If your child's That's what gotten- I was just going to say. Like this would be, I, I totally understand that being feasible while one parent is not working. But mm-hmm. as soon as you have like a daycare that you have to be to at a certain time and like that could be real difficult if this kid has just slept whenever, <laughs> whenever, whenever and wherever they fell asleep. <laughs> right, right. And now you've got to try to get them on some kind of schedule that can be really hard. All right. So that's just about like schedules and sleep training, all of that. Again, we're here to just kind of share the the pros and cons. Next thing I want to get into is a little bit about independent sleep versus co-sleep. And co-sleep can kind of be like some people use that term to talk about room sharing, but I want to really talk about it explicitly for bed sharing, like babies in the bed with you asleep. Okay. Just to clarify that because some people use it interchangeably. All right. Let's talk about, let's talk about some pros of your child sleeping independently. Um, So they're sleeping in their own bed. They may be in their own room, but they are away from you at night. They are in their little crib or cradle or whatever it is. And that's amazing because you have your own bed, which is great. And maybe you don't have to worry about a kid like throwing up or pooping in your bed in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is also great. Another plus. Yeah, we're excited for that. Um, This also means more restful and more deep sleep for you as a parent, which is wonderful. We love that and we need it so bad. I support that. It's so great. Um, Another pro uh, for your baby sleeping independently is that they can learn how to self self soothe, which is really great. Um, if your child learns how to get themselves calm, maybe they suck their thumb, maybe they cuddle a little blanket or something, who knows what they're doing, but they are able to soothe themselves, which is awesome. And then of course, probably the biggest pro of all is there's no fear of like rolling over on top of your baby or like smothering your baby in the night which is certainly a a concern with co-sleeping. The absolute biggest pro for me. 100%. Now, there are some cons for independent sleep, too. The first one being that it can increase sleep anxiety. So even though your child is down the hall, that doesn't mean that you're still not clutched onto the baby monitor and like checking it every five minutes. Like, are they okay? Are they okay? Are they okay? Which again can impact your sleep because if you're so worried about your baby's sleep, you're not getting quality sleep yourself. And, you know, (laughs) they, they have all these little monitors and magic socks you can put on your kid nowadays and it's gonna alarm at you if their pulse ox gets too low, which is like so high tech and amazing. Um, They didn't have that when Fisher was a baby, but like I probably would have bought into that and then I would have been paranoid over one more thing in my exactly. life. So. <laughs> oh my goodness. Sleeping solo can also increase nighttime crying, which can disrupt sleep for the parent and the infant. So obviously it can babies over there and they're going to wake up, you know, it's called night waking and where's my mom and they're freaking out and then you're up, which is not great. Those are really the the pros and cons of solo sleep. I want to spend some time with co-sleeping because this is super controversial. People have really, really strong feelings on it. My research that I found here was actually really interesting about co-sleeping. And I would love to get some convos started on our Facebook page about this. Again, everybody be respectful and like kind, but you know, what what are your thoughts on this? It's it's hugely controversial. And what's weird is I think it's more controversial in the United States than anywhere else in the world. So yeah. And I'll get into that. Okay, so let's talk about the cons of co-sleeping. First of all, number one biggest con of co-sleeping is what, Melanie? 
the number one con in my mind is that I am in a state as a parent where I'm completely exhausted and not fully aware of what's going on all the time. And I accidentally flop a blanket on top of my infant or an arm or who knows, and I'm totally unaware of it. That's what that's that's that fear that I have is why I never did it when Jonah was little. And it's a very, very real fear. We're all educated, fortunately, like through our healthcare system about sudden infant death syndrome, which is super, super serious, also known as SIDS. And this is greatly increased um, the risk for SIDS with bed sharing. However, The American Academy of Pediatrics didn't really launch an investigation into this until the early 1990s, and they didn't offer a strong opinion on bed sharing until 2005, so nearly 15 years later. Um, So they were doing all this research in the 90s, but they didn't come back and really talk about it until 2005. And in 2005, they put their foot down and they said, you know what? Bed sharing is unsafe. And here's all this research about SIDS. So don't do it. And they put it out there. And um, it was a lot of, you know, it's, it's, I don't think their research was fear-based because their research is, is research. You know, they're sharing this right. data about accidental asphyxiation and injury and all of these horrible, terrible things. But that's very scary to us as mothers. A hundred percent. After what we just went through. <laughs> so we're going to react very strongly through that. You know, that's a, big, huge deal. So serious, serious con. Um, But what I want to talk about are actually some of the pros that I found on co-sleeping when I started doing this research. And I was amazed at the pros of co-sleeping. Okay. Really kind of blew my mind. So first thing to really think about here is other countries versus the United States. And there have been studies done you know, all throughout the 2000s, like these are recent studies that are looking at the rates of bed sharing in other countries and China and Asian countries and Canada have super, super high rates of bed sharing uh, with, with not significant rates of like SIDS being like super high either. So in other cultures, it's very, very common. And another thing that's really interesting is when they surveyed moms in the United States, they actually found that uh, black women and Hispanic mothers actually have higher rates of bed sharing than Caucasian women in the United States. So really, it's only white U.S. women that don't do this. And even, even women in the U.K. sleep with their babies more often than women in the U.S., Okay. So um, one of the things that you talked about was like the fear of falling into like a really, really deep sleep because you're so exhausted and not being aware. So one of the things that's actually interesting about that is you actually are getting way lighter sleep when you're co-sleeping and you spend a whole lot more time in REM than you do in deep sleep. And so with that, there's kind of a, a smaller risk of accidentally rolling over on top of your baby. And they actually found that the REM sleep that you're in for moms and babies is very important for synaptogenesis and uh, the growth of connections between neurons, um, especially in newborns. So newborn babies actually get more REM sleep when they're co-sleeping than if they're sleeping independently. And that actually causes higher growth of neurons. Interesting. Yeah, kind of blew my mind there. There was even a study that found that when fathers slept close to their babies, their testosterone dropped more compared to fathers who slept separately. And uh, this study found that men who have lower testosterone tend to engage in more sensitive and responsive parenting. So it could actually, you know, improve the relationship between the baby and the father as well. That's really interesting. I wouldn't have even thought... I just, I don't know. I'll be honest. The thought of it still stresses me out, especially when they're like super, super little. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, do not get me wrong. I had a three-year-old in bed with me almost every night. 
Mm-hmm. I, I, that doesn't scare me as much. But when they're teeny tiny, it just made me so nervous. Right. And that's where, like, for me, when I was on the futon and I could just put Fisher into that little box and I knew yep. he was contained and I wasn't going to roll on top of him, you know, that gave me, like, some peace of mind. There's so much research. And I didn't even look at the intersection of breastfeeding with this because that's, like, a yeah, whole separate. That's a, that's a big one. Yeah. Um, and most of the time when it comes to bed sharing, it's because mothers are nursing their baby and they're keeping their right. baby really close to their breast, um, which tends to be really successful for them um, when they're breastfeeding. But if you do choose to co-sleep, there's actually some really great resources from the Sleep Foundation about how to do this safely. So if you do choose to co-sleep, please, please, please co-sleep safely. And they wrote this awesome little song about safe sleep seven tips. Okay. Wow. These are the safe sleep seven. And I'm going to sing you the song, Melanie. I knew you were going to. I felt it. I felt it coming. <laughs> okay, get ready here. I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> no smoke, sober mom, baby at your breast, healthy baby on his back, keep him lightly dressed, not too soft a bed, watch the cords and gaps, keep the covers off his head for your nights and naps. Wow. I expected a round of applause. Oh, I'm so sorry. I I didn't know if there was going to be another verse or not. I I wasn't counting. Uh, So just to highlight a couple of things there, if you do choose to co-sleep, you need to do it when you are sober. Don't go to bed after drinking or smoking or even taking certain medications that may impact your um, your ability to respond. Yeah, exactly. Keep your baby on on their back um, while they're sleeping beside you and keep them lightly dressed. One of the big concerns with SIDS is that the baby might overheat. So especially if they're next to you and they're getting some residual body heat, yeah. keep them in lighter clothes or, you know, maybe even just like a diaper. Um, not too soft a bed kind of goes back to what we were talking about with your pillow. Um, yeah. Firmer surfaces are better. You don't want to have, you know, swishy fabrics or something where they could accidentally, you know, burrow and, you know, not be able to breathe well, watch for cords and gaps. So I know we all sleep with our cell phone right next to us and our cell phone charger. Don't fall asleep with your cell phone plugged into the charger in the bed with you near your baby. Where their little arm can get caught in it or their neck. Not a good thing. And then any kind of gaps. So like, you know, could they fall between the headboard? Could they fall between somewhere? Keep all of right. that closed up. Yeah. And then just try to keep any covers or blankets away from um, the baby's baby's head and face. So that's some very preliminary information. There's so much out there about baby sleep. But this I thought was enough to kind of get us started and to get us thinking in terms of schedule and solo versus co-sleeping. Please, listeners, we'd love to hear from you about this. Tell us what's worked for you. Tell us funny stories. You can send us a a private message if you'd like to remain anonymous or pop it on our Facebook page. We are here to talk about it. All right, Melanie. So I just talked to us and probably put several listeners to sleep talking about baby sleep. What do you have to teach us tonight when it comes to these little bitty babies? Well, I knew that you were going to be talking about the little teeny tiny ones. So I I wanted to address a couple really common issues that come up with the little itty bitties. And really, honestly, just to kind of I didn't know anything about either of these things really when I had my child and it probably would have made me feel better if if I had had mm. some knowledge mm. ahead of time. Firstly, I'm going to talk about cradle cap. Are you mm. familiar with cradle cap at all? It's just when their heads get all scabby, right? Yeah. And like all crusty, crusty head. Right. But it's like really distressing Uh, for Mm. a lot of babies. It happens when they're really teeny tiny. So you have this like beautiful little baby with almost no hair. And then suddenly their whole head is covered with crusty, oily, scaly patches. It's yeah. I mean, it's really horrific looking. Mm. Um, Mm. And I just... 
everybody should be should be aware of it. So we'll talk about what causes it and then what we can do about it. And we'll kind of go from there. Um, the common signs of it are, like I said, patchy, scaly. It's like thick, crusty. It's almost like yellowish or white on the scalp. The skin is flaky. And then sometimes it's like a little bit red around there. For mm-hmm. some babies, it will even kind of like spread down to their ears or their eyelids or even on their nose sometimes. It's really common in newborns. It's technically called, are you ready? Yes. Infantile seborrheic dermatitis. So here we are with another dermatitis. Mm-hmm. Remember poison ivy and poison oak? That's yeah. also a type of dermatitis. Mm-hmm. And that second word you said sounds like cerebrum or like head. No, right? it's actually seabor, S-E-B-O-R-R. Oh. So it has to do with sebum, which is a whole other situation. What is that? Yeah. Okay. So in most cases, it's what I just mentioned, the infantile seboric dermatitis. It's sometimes confused with something else that's called atopic dermatitis. The difference is the atopic dermatitis is going to be really itchy, whereas cradle cap or seboric dermatitis isn't itchy and you're not supposed to scratch it. Like, do Mm -hmm. not scratch the cradle cap. It looks itchy, but don't Mm. scratch it. We'll, We'll get more into that. The cause of it is actually still not known. Like, doctors do not know what causes this. Really? They, Yeah. They believe that one of the contributing factors may be hormones hmm. that pass to the baby before they're born. And those hormones cause too much production of an oil called sebum. It causes a production of too much sebum in the oil glands and the hair follicles. So Hmm. that's where it comes from. In certain cases, they believe that it also may be contributed to a yeast called malasia. So it could be um, a yeast as well. Good thing to know here, two good things to know. It is not contagious and it is not caused by poor hygiene. So there's nothing that you did to cause your little itty baby, itty bitty baby to have this horrifying thing on their scalp. I'm glad you said that because I feel like the hygiene thing is a big part of it. Like I've seen babies with cradle cap and I, I, I've understood enough about it to know like it's not caused by that. But if I were like, I feel like that's always your first reaction is like, oh my gosh, people are going to think I don't take care of my baby or I don't clean my baby or like, you know, moisturize its head. <laughs> I think you're correct. Like people are going to think that, but those people haven't listened to our podcast. So yeah, get out there and listen to our podcast. It people. doesn't have anything Jeez. to do with hygiene. So how do we prevent this? They suggest that you shampoo your itty-bitty baby's hair every few days, and that's to kind of break up that oil if it's starting Mm, to collect. mm -hmm. And, of course, use, like, a mild baby shampoo. If your baby does develop cradle cap, do not scratch it because if you scratch it, it can actually cause damage to the underlying skin because it gets kind of flaky and crusty and, like, so you don't... You don't want to do that. If your baby has like an outbreak of it, you want to wash their hair once a day. And while it's like wet, you can actually Mm -hmm. use like a a toothbrush or like a really soft bristled brush to like kind of scrub it. And that's like kind of Hmm. loosening, but like while it's wet so that you're not pulling stuff from underneath. Damaging it. Yeah. Right. This I actually tried once and I should say that Jonah developed this much older like he was like three or four even i'm not even i remember that i remember that yeah and he at that point had like long hair not long hair but like he had he has very thick hair and everything that i had read at that time said to cover all of it in either like petroleum jelly so like vaseline vaseline (laughs) or coconut oil And just leave it like that 
And then, you know, like comb it or brush it with like a soft brush and Mm -hmm. wash it. Now, I'm going to tell y'all, if you have an older child that has cradle cap, I do not suggest (laughs) that you do this particular technique because I probably had to wash his hair six times to get the coconut oil out and i don't know that it even helped that much as Mm. far as getting those scales off of his head there's some places that recommend a hydrocortisone cream that just kind of calms it down like especially if you have one if your baby has one of those cases that has like the redness to it if you're nursing they suggest that you take you, mama, take a vitamin B supplement. Adding omega-3s and vitamin D to the diet is excellent for skin care as well as vitamin B. And that can sometimes help heal the, the cradle cap on, on your little ones. They also say a humidifier. I'm sure that will come up again when we're talking about like young kids' uh, health issues. But a humidifier turns out it's really helpful for a lot of different situations. Oh, gosh, yeah. We had a humidifier in Fisher's room for like the first three years of his life. I would I would say that was that fan. is true for us as well. Now, there are some others that suggest, um, like if your child is on a formula, that you might need to try switching the formula. For some mm. kids, they believe that it's tied to almost like an allergy type situation. Hmm. And you would love this, Miranda. If you're nursing, they say that the mom should, to boost her baby's gut flora, she should eat yogurt, kefir, and kombucha to introduce more probiotics. Yes. <laughs> so, like I said, in most cases, this does clear up on its own. It's not anything to worry about. If it's been an ongoing thing and the tips that I mentioned aren't helping, you may want to consult your doctor. All you mamas out there, you're tired. Just know that this isn't anything that you did It's not contagious, and it doesn't have anything to do with how clean you're keeping your baby. So it sounds like more than anything, it's kind of just like a a mechanism that the baby hasn't worked out yet. Like the the little oil glands haven't just figured out how much oil to produce or something yet. I think that that's kind of I think that's kind of what it is. Like it hasn't settled in yet. Yeah. Now I will say with Jonah, and this was I did this all on my own without consulting a doctor. He's eight now, and he had like a couple spots, those same spots that showed Mm -hmm. up when he was like three or four came back. And Hmm. I just bought a bottle of Head and Shoulders. Oh, yeah? Yeah. How did it do? For two weeks, like every time mm-hmm. he washed, I did it. I was like, every time he washed his hair, because he's the point now, like he takes a shower on his own, which is yeah. questionable how clean that hair is getting. But oh, yeah. <laughs> for for a couple weeks, every time he washed his hair, I actually did it. And I scrubbed that head and shoulders in there and made mm. sure we rinsed it really good. Mm-hmm. And it almost completely cleared up. Wow. So, you know, hmm. I wouldn't don't do that with an itty bitty baby. Yeah, not with an itty bitty baby. <laughs> They're yeah. not ready for that. Anyway, if you're if you have an older kid, you might want to look at that. The other thing that I wanted to talk about, Miranda, is mm-hmm. diaper rash. Diaper rash. Oh, boy. As a new mom, I feel like I I mean, I had heard of diaper rash before, mm-hmm. but I feel like I was unprepared for how sensitive that little bum can be. Yeah. The little baby bottom. Diaper rash is a common form of irritation dermatitis. Another dermatitis. Another dermatitis. Tell you what. So, of course, most of us are aware or can infer that it looks like patches of inflamed skin on your baby's bottom. And it can come from a variety of different things, which we're going to talk about. Do you know what one of the main causes of diaper rash is, Miranda? My guess would be just like 
too much swampy booty contained in a diaper for too long like a like you're not changing your child's diaper frequently enough and it gets all swampy in there exactly right uh it is mainly caused by leaving on wet or soiled diapers for too long and the tender skin of the baby can develop a rash Babies may be more prone to diaper rash if they're experiencing frequent bowel movements or diarrhea. Mm -hmm. So you really got to keep them clean. If you have a tight-fitting diaper or clothing that rubs against skin in that area, that can also contribute. Pay very close attention if you switch to a new product. And that meaning diapers, wipes, detergent, any type of fabric, softener, lotions, oils, powders, because a lot of times it's tied to like an allergy type situation. Mm, Makes sense. Now, some kids can develop bacterial or yeast infections. And so that's why we obviously want to keep a close eye on this. If it's something that goes on for a while and like normal treatments, your, your butt pastes or whatever you're using aren't clearing it up, we might need to look into some some other options. Um, once your little ones start eating foods, foods can actually cause diaper rash. What? So, yeah. So introducing a new food, as babies start to eat solid foods, the content of their stool changes, and that can increase the likelihood of diaper rash. Huh. I mean, I guess that makes sense. Breastfed babies might even develop diaper rash in response to something that the mother has eaten. Wow. Yeah. So that's crazy. So the sensitive skin, like if you have a baby that has eczema or cradle cap, those can be signs that they have more sensitive skin. So Mm -hmm. um, just keep an eye on that. Be real careful with those little ones. And then if they end up on antibiotics, sometimes the diaper rash or if the breastfeeding mother ends up on antibiotics, they mm-hmm. can end up with like a yeast-driven diaper oh, rash, wow. which is what I mentioned before. Now, I did some extra research to find this, and I was getting very upset because I couldn't find anything to back me up, but I did, finally. When Jonah was little and when he was still in diapers, he would get diaper rash every time he was cutting a tooth. Really? And I don't know if you experienced that with Fisher Or if you caught on to the correlation, like you really have to like, you really have to be thinking about it. Like with Jonah, with Jonah, when he was cutting a tooth, he was, he was a miserable human, which Mm -hmm. he was not a miserable baby at all. He was always Mm -hmm. a very happy baby. He was miserable and he had diaper rash. Hmm. So I actually found an article by the AAP, which I think is the American Academy of Pediatrics. One risk factor for developing diaper rash is teething. And the Hmm. AAP explains that this is due to the extra saliva in their mouth because a tooth is coming in. No way. changes the contents of their GI tract, which can lead to loose stool or diarrhea. Oh, my gosh. And thereby diaper rash. That's insane. So, That's insane. Yeah, it's We are all a fine balance. Oh, my gosh. I know Fisher, whenever he was cutting a tooth, it was always, he would be so snotty and just congested, you know. Yeah, Jonah, him. that too. It's like they're little messes when they, when they get to that. That's awful. Now I'm just waiting for Fisher to lose his teeth. I'm like, my gosh, his little two tiny baby teeth are like barely hanging in. I'm like, get out of there. They're so small (laughs) in his mouth. It's so funny. Of course, there's all kinds of creams and things to treat diaper rash. We always used, what was it? Dr. Bordeaux's butt paste, paste, I believe. That was was our favorite. Um, (laughs) I know that some people use, is it utter cream? I've seen that Mm -hmm. um, used Mm -hmm. for diaper rash before. And of course, there's like, there's 
actual creams that just say diaper rash. You don't have to go with butt paste if you don't like that, but I thought it was funny. Anyway, usually this takes several days to improve, but if it, of course, if it persists, then we need to, you know, seek some medical Mm -hmm. attention. Now, there are a lot of home remedies, and I wanted to touch on a few of those. One of the biggest things is keeping the diaper area clean and dry. So a lot of times what they'll do is suggest letting your little one just run around bare ass, baby. Bare ass. Let them run. You obviously can't do that in every environment. <laughs> like dropping your kid off at daycare. Hey, can you just pull his diaper off and just let him run about for a while? He has the diaper. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the Probably things, and, and back to your your cloth diaper attempt, the cloth diapers are not nearly as absorbent as the uh, chemical-filled uh No. You have to change them so much more frequently. So it does suggest that like even if you're like a daytime cloth diaper, mm-hmm. you uh, might need to put a pamper on overnight to draw that moisture away. So talc powder, cream paste, ointment, bathe your baby daily, witch hazel is mentioned in this list, which I thought was interesting. Human breast milk. Of course, it solves it solves all ailments. It's I the feel elixir. like there's there's an article to back up everything. Listen to this. Results are mixed on whether human breast milk applied to diaper rash is better than other treatments. One study showed that applying breast milk to diaper rash is an effective and safe treatment. Infants with diaper rash were treated with either 1% hydrocortisone ointment or breast milk. The study concluded 141 infants. Treatment with breast milk was as effective as the ointment alone. So there you go. If you've got it, use it. (laughs) Beeswax, bee pollen, you know, with everything that we talk about on here, do what works for you, but be aware that it's not one of those things that's going to like clear up on its own. So if your little has got a sore butt, they're going to be miserable. And it's best if you deal with that as, as quickly as possible. And I guess we officially endorse Dr. Bordeaux's butt paste. Hey, Dr. Bordeaux, if you want to sponsor our podcast, we will gladly support you. And that's all I have to say about that, folks. Keep their butts and their heads clean. From top to bottom. From top to bottom, keep them clean and you're good to go. Do you have a spotlight for our little bitty episode over here about the itty bitties? If I didn't. Do you have one? Negatory. (laughs) I am not the spotlight girl. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Well, then it is a good thing that I do. (laughs) You're awesome. Listen, we've talked about a lot with little itty bitty babies. And Miranda and I are talking to you all from a place where we no longer have little itty bitty babies. We, We got through it. We joke and laugh about it now, but it can be a very tough time. And some folks have a harder time with that than others. Miranda, did you know that one in five moms and one in 10 dads suffer from postpartum depression? I did not know that. Wow. Yeah. Especially not the dad, the dad piece. Yeah. Hear I about that, that was surprising as well. Wow. But one in five moms, which I thought mm. was a staggering, staggering number, totally understandable. And I know that postpartum depression is a whole separate topic that we can really dive into. But mm-hmm. I found this charity and they're international. It is called Postpartum Support International. And their website is www.postpartum.net. 
They are the world's leading nonprofit organization dedicated to assisting mothers suffering from perinatal and postnatal mood disorders, which includes postpartum depression and so much more. They offer training, resources, and active help to these women. You can donate to PSI. That's their that's their acronym. You can donate to PSI, become a member, find a training event, attend their annual conference, or find help if you are a mother in need. So one in five of us is going to struggle with this. So check out postpartum.net. And remember, and I did steal this from their website, you are not alone. You are not to blame. And with help, you will be well. I love that. That's awesome. You are so good at coming up with these spotlights and like connecting these themes together. So I just want to give a spotlight to you, Melanie. But also, I encourage everybody to check this website out and this awesome resource. Because even if you're not a mom who's struggling with postpartum depression, I guarantee you that there is a friend or a woman or someone in your circle who is. And to reach out to a resource like this where you can gain some language and some insight and maybe just some some support around that topic could be really impactful and could change somebody's life if you're able to communicate with them and let them know like, hey, I'm, I'm here with you, I'm beside you. Let's all just be supportive. If you like what you hear from us, be sure to follow our show. And if you really like us, you can leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. We want to be friends with you. Connect with us on social media by following at Mother Mayhem Podcast or email us directly at mothermayhempodcast at gmail.com.